Okay, episode one of None of the Above and Beyond. Yes, we're getting to it. We're getting started. <laughs> well, this is actually take two. Let's yeah. be honest. I know, I know. And I didn't think it was going to happen. I thought the, I'm, I'm surprised that such a glitch messed up our first one. That said, um, I'm not sure if everyone knows what this show is about or what it's called. None of the above and beyond. <laughs> <laughs> so none of the above and beyond is a show that we came up with uh, to bring together people who have trouble answering the question, what do you do and where do you come from? Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you can't answer the question, where are you from, in one word, it can just be difficult to define yourself and figure out like what you are, where you belong, where you fit in. But at the same time, it's becoming more and more common, which is great. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's ge- geographical as well as um, the what do you do question, mm-hmm. right? Whenever we, we are asked that question or hear someone else being asked that question, uh, lots of people stumble over that answer. And uh, we might be like, oh, I mean, I do this, but I also do that. And I also do this. So I don't have an exact job title or a complete, you know, title that might match an identity that you can understand. But Mm -hmm. this is just take it or leave it. This is what I am and who I am, what I do. Mm -hmm. And I also just generally struggle with the question, what do you do? Because... I also suffer from my own sort of imposter syndrome when it comes to certain things that I do. So it's like, if I were to answer the question truthfully, I would want to say I'm a writer. But that is so difficult for me to say. I feel like it comes with a a level of pretension, actually. Like, I don't want people to think I'm pretentious or that I think, like, I'm the next Stephen King or whatever. Maybe Stephen King's not the right example, you know. <laughs> but the next, you know, Chimandan Gozi Adichie, <laughs> you know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you just reminded me of a really funny situation where yeah. this is like totally not something I've mentioned to you before. Yeah. But I was in London for my like before I got married for my bachelorette, and I met this very famous Indian actor. He was, and I didn't. No, he was a famous Indian actor. <laughs> and my background is acting, singing, um, and writing, right? So somebody introduced me to him, and they're like, this is Farhan. Uh, he's an actor in India. And I'm like, oh, hi, I'm Caroline. I'm also an actor and a musician, and uh, I've made films as well, right? <laughs> and, like, you know, the, it's the truth. I've gotten paid for all of the above. Mm-hmm. It's my work, and mm-hmm. I've also written, and I've gotten paid for it. Mm. He might be the Chimamanda of acting in <laughs> India. <laughs> and I might be the Caroline of acting and writing in my life. But it doesn't like, you know, down, I shouldn't downplay the fact that I did that. All my friends laughed at me when I said this. Though. Oh, no. <laughs> no, no, it was out of love. It was my, it was like my best friends. They laughed at me because yeah. they're like, it's so funny for this like guy who we see on the big screen. If anyone knows who Farhan Akhtar is, that's the main, a- the actor who I met. That actually sounds familiar to yeah, me. Yeah, okay, really that's big. so funny. <laughs> yeah. Um, but like, I, I don't regret saying that and I, I'll do it again. <laughs> I love that. I love that for you. Honestly. I just, yeah, for me, I kind of struggle with the confidence of it all. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I'm an artist. I write. It's like... Yeah, there's a lot of connotations attached yeah. to those titles. Um, and I, I think we always judge ourselves as creatives because um, it feels like 
a lot of people look at it as pipe dreams, mm -hmm. those aspirations or those goals. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of people don't consider it successful unless you have like some kind of bank account that proves it. <laughs> so it's like, but you know, it has to start somewhere. All actors, all writers, uh, even journalists, you know, like it, mm -hmm. starting careers mean sometimes sacrificing the big bucks at the beginning or, mm. you know, like having smaller projects to start with. It's not like it's going to happen overnight. So you have to call yourself that in order to keep doing that. And if you mm. don't call yourself that, like, I don't know, I, I think like then you can't really live up to it for yourself, right? You're absolutely right. And you said an important thing, which is like in the beginning when you start off, of course, like you need to believe that you can do it. Obviously, like, yeah, I will have that internalized voice that's like, no, maybe you can't do it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but at the same time, the bank account, obviously, I don't want to be rich as a writer. Like, first of all, if you set out to do to write and be an artist with the intention of making a lot of money, like, I don't think that's the right mindset to be in. That being said, like, it is really validating when you get compensation for your work. And I don't want to downplay that because you do have a lot of people that will say like, oh, if if for, if it's, you know, art in your eyes, then it's art. And I'm not saying it's not art, but I'm not going to feel compelled to do it if I'm not rewarded for it somehow. So I'm trying to balance those two ideas out. I think I've just always stuck to my guns on what I want to get paid. But, and people will always try to undercut, right? I, I think... Um, now, because I'm focusing more on my creative writing, the essay writing and the poetry, uh, I think I understand that I'm not going to get paid a lot to begin with. Like I came into this space knowing that I'm only going to get like a finite amount of time to focus on this and I'm also not going to necessarily be able to put all my financial time into it so it's not that it's a part-time thing it's something that I'm doing but I also know that I can't expect that to be where I'm getting the money from immediately but I I have hopes that it will pay off afterwards and if I don't invest in it like you know there's so many entrepreneurs that start businesses and you know it doesn't pick up for the first three to five years like I think it's almost like a lot of uh these, uh, you know, self-help writers and uh, mm, other mm. podcast hosts, I think they talk about how it, the first five years you shouldn't expect to get any money out of your business. You just keep on putting the money back into the business. It's the same thing with being an artist or a writer. Um, you just keep on investing into your, uh, until, into your work until it sees results. Totally. And the main investment as an artist is your time. You know, like if you're building a business and you're lucky enough to start making a profit after year two or three, let's say, you start to reinvest in the business, you know, towards growth. For us, it's if I get positive feedback from people, then I reinvest my time in my work. Um, yeah, it, it, it is difficult, though, because, yeah, again, it's sort of an unconventional route and there's so much like... Emotion, emotional involvement yeah. with your work when you're a, an artist quote-unquote artist <laughs> when you're a writer like you know if it's a business you get to look at numbers you you get feedback from your early customers um and it's, it's all very practical and you know it makes sense and logical whereas with with writing something like something like poetry so this is how we met, right, at uh, VCFA, because we're both doing the MFA in creative writing. 
And uh, literally my first day, like my first call, um, the woman like who was on the faculty in poetry said, if anyone's here to make money, like you shouldn't be in this program. <laughs> you know? <laughs> but I don't know. Deep down, I always felt like, no, I want to eventually make an income. Maybe not from poetry. Like, let's be real. Um, <laughs> but whatever tools I learn from this, I hope to eventually use to to make an income nothing crazy but like i do want to live off of what i do so i wish poetry could make money i wish we didn't <laughs> have to say that i can't make money from poetry <laughs> it's so sad i i remember saying that to someone like in our faculty i think uh, at the beginning of our program from when i joined and i don't know i, I think there's still like a little inkling of hope in a lot of people that there is a way to make money from poetry and I think that I personally hope that there's a creative way to do mm-hmm. it like mm-hmm. uh, there are people who've used digital media to get their work out there mm-hmm. and uh, turn it into event opportunities or performance opportunities mm-hmm. I think if we are inventive with how we present our work sometimes especially with digital Maybe there's something, but uh, it's definitely a very, it's the hardest out of all mm. of the creating creative writing spaces or, uh, to get an audience for, right? Like as in, uh, poetry would be the hardest, hardest one to get an audience. Totally, and it was not always like this. So um, basically what I've worked on the most throughout my time at VCFA is translation of um, Lebanese poetry into English, right? But the main genre I've been translating is a type of oral poetry called uh, Zajal. And it's not just in Lebanon, it's also in other like Arabic-speaking countries, um, Palestine, Syria, um, and there's a version of it in, uh, even in the Gulf, there's a version of it in North Africa. Um, but it's so popular in Lebanon because basically what these poets do is they improvise poetry on the spot in terms of like, as, as a sort of battle, almost like freestyle rap. And they get so many people to come and watch them. And this is their job. Like, there are famous Zajal poets currently in Lebanon that live off of literally just going from town to town and battling other poets in, like, improvised awesome. poetry. That is so cool. Yeah. It's not as big now as it was, like, in the 70s and 80s, like... My parents know the names of those like great Sajal poets of the time. So cool, you know, and so it's actually a respected form of performance art um, that is kind of widely consumed, yeah. big time. And it's almost like football in other countries, right? Like it came to a point where there were two like rival um, groups, and like when you know they started to have like these different clashes, you know, different like quote-unquote battles in different towns uh, to the point where it reached, you know, the level of, like, a like Real Madrid-Barcelona, like, Clásico football game, <laughs> but in poetry. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, people went in, like, the thousands, the tens of thousands, and, you know, just to watch these guys, like... Yeah. <laughs> you know. Spar. Yeah. yeah. In poems. Yeah. <laughs> it it reminds me of like a rap battle. I think when you first started telling yeah. me about this, I was like, oh my gosh, they're having like, they're what is freestyling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, uh, while you were talking about this, I was just thinking how, um, how I know you've talked to me about your background before uh, and how you've grown up in this, in, in Dubai, but you also have so much 
history with Lebanon mm. and you've got roots mm. in both Lebanon and Canada and uh, how you've managed to kind of bring those all together. Mm. Uh, and that's one of the, the reasons that we started working on this show, uh, this podcast, because mm. I think when we kept on talking about this, we were, it, it was interesting to us that we're drawn to other people who are also still pulling at the different sides of themselves and inserting it into their work. And uh, it's just so cool that we can still have access to that sides of our, that side of ourselves. And I'm also drawn to other artists who are doing that. Like even Chimamanda, for instance. Like, yeah. okay, I know we brought her up the second time and we've never <laughs> talked about her before this, but like she's actually, I love her. Yeah. I, I, like Americana is one of my favorite books. And um, even uh, a couple of her other things of her essays and stuff. So um, while, I, while I was reading her stuff, she was one of the people who made me think like your journey of going from one place to another and comparing the person you became in that new place and the person you were before and returning to that place and kind of bringing together all those different aspects of your identity is what makes you kind of such an interesting person to talk to or like listen to or read you know it's your story is something that I want to know more about and I think there I want to see more people like that getting to mm-hmm. share their stories so I don't know like uh, I feel like that's like the kind of people that were I imagine if we could get Shibamanda on the show hello Shibamanda <laughs> are you listening <laughs> That would be great. <laughs> oh my god, you s- you put that so beautifully, honestly. I don't know, I feel like sometimes it's a blessing and a curse. You know, I c- I grew up here obviously. But I feel like I inherited a lot of my parents' identity crisis in regards to Lebanon. In fact, they made me love Lebanon. Which is very weird. It's not the case for a lot of people like us who, le- like whose parents left the war and then moved elsewhere. Like I have a very close friend, and we have a very similar background. Her parents also left Lebanon probably around the eighties, um, and she grew up here in Dubai. And her parents did not want her to feel attached to Lebanon, and I completely understand because they were disappointed by this country. You know, they were, they had to flee their country and they only have pretty much, I don't want to say they only have bad memories there because a lot of people talk about the war with so much nostalgia and so much love. And there are obviously so many joyful, loving moments from, you know, from the war that I, you know, hear in anecdotes and stories from my parents and from that generation, like the civil war generation. But yeah, some some people don't want to instill that love for their country and their children. They don't want them to feel attached to this place that is probably going to let them down. And that happened to me, right? Like when I was 11, I happened to be in Lebanon in 2006 um, when there was, you know, the war with Israel. And so that sort of that was really sort of disillusionary for me as a kid. And then coming back to Lebanon as as an adult and again falling in love with Beirut and meeting people and just, I don't know, uh, just connecting with it on such a deep level and then the explosion happened, you know? And it's just this back and forth. It's like this, everyone says it's like a toxic relationship, you know? I don't have to be attached to Lebanon. I don't have to care. But, like, when the uprisings happened in October 2019, I literally went down for the weekend, like, just to be a part of it. And there are some beautiful highs, like, these amazing moments, like that time in 2019 where there was this crazy uprising, and it was all about, like, 
you know, civil rights and all these things were being talked about that used to be taboo. And it was like such a beautiful moment in my life. It was maybe one of the best moments ever. And then something like the explosion is like the worst moment of my life. And, you know, it's like at the same time, I'm so lucky and so privileged that I get the choice. And my parents gave me that choice. And I'm so grateful. Like they made it a point for me, for us to live in Canada when I was born, which is like how we're all Canadian and we love Canada. And I went to study at McGill. My brother lives there. He's a lawyer there. Like we have that amazing connection with Canada. We have this amazing connection with Dubai. But like, yeah, I don't know. It's, yeah, it's, it's, I have so much to say about it and also nothing. (laughs) (coughs) You know, know. while you're talking and like the last part that you said about having an amazing connection with Canada and with Dubai and having this sort of, um, I guess, frayed relationship with Lebanon because it's Mm. like you have threads of it that you hold on to, but you don't know which ones to hold on to and which ones to let go of. And you keep on, I guess like it's a give and take or a pull and push and pull kind of thing. I don't Mm. know. Um, And I think it's amazing that your parents also gave you that freedom to choose how you feel about it. And you're able to, and because of that, I think you're able to access access it in your work and it becomes Mm. such a big part of your story. And I I have a similar experience and I also have know people with um, experiences similar to your friend's experience. I don't know where I fall between your friend's experience and yours because my parents had a similar um, kind of departure from India. Mm -hmm. I think uh, they were in India until they were teenagers and they left when India was in a really hard place Mm -hmm. in the 70s when, you know, there were just, there was so much development that needed to be done and it was struggling a lot and... um, it happened to a lot of Indians who left at that time that the ones who I've, the, the next generation that I've met in Canada uh, and in parts of Dubai, they have like no relationship with India. As in, uh, you know, they're almost self-hating Indians. That's what I sometimes call them. Self-hating Indians. Yeah, I know it's like, I'm going to get a lot of slack for that. But <laughs> <laughs> I've met like people who don't want to associate with their Indian background. But at the same time... I know Lebanese people like that. You know, like, and then I, after I um, came back from, because I had never lived in India or Dubai after the age of five. Like, I was in Canada all my life. And then when I came to the Middle East and India, I was like, okay, um, I see why maybe they don't connect with it, right? Maybe they don't, they've never visited some of them. Like, I have cousins who've never visited India, um, who never visited Dubai even to, like, see, like, there's such a rich Indian community here, too. But even the Indians in Dubai, a lot of them have never lived in India. Most of them have not, you know? Like, the ones who've grown up here, their parents left in the 60s and 70s. So there's, like, this kind of, I don't really, and, and if the parents didn't pass on that culture to the kids because the parents left at a hard time and wanted to kind of, like, say, okay, I'm, I'm done with that, this is my new life, um, then it, how would they be able to hold on to that? Like, we can't blame the kids and we can't blame the parents. Like, I mean, it's not something to be blamed on. It's just like a choice, I guess, or like something that happened and might not even have been a conscious choice. So a lot of us, I think, second or first generation immigrants or, you know, the children of immigrants, um, we have this thing where we're like, okay, uh, what part are we like? What do we? How do we explore this side of ourselves? So I have ended up writing so much stuff about it <laughs> that it's almost like therapy. <laughs> yeah, same. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. I should have talked to my therapist about it at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was once reading some of my work to my mom, and she was like, "Don't people think you are maybe a little obsessed with <laughs> Lebanon?" <laughs> 
Yeah, it's kind of an obsession. Like, I don't know. It's so strange. I I genuinely don't know how I feel about it. Like, again, totally understand people who want to distance themselves from Lebanon. Honestly, I get it. Yeah, deep down, I'm a bit annoyed that, like, you keep saying you're French when I know you're actually, like, oh. <laughs> Lebanese. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, like, I don't mean this. I don't say this about, like, people who are actually, like, in France. I mean, like, people who live here have never been to France, don't even have the French nationality, <laughs> but will tell people that they're French instead of Lebanese, you know? If if it helps you get places, fine. But, like, yeah, it does sometimes bother me when people, like, full-on deny their culture. But at the same time, I can't blame people for wanting to distance themselves from Lebanon. I get it, you know? And, I, yeah, I just, I personally don't know how... I would be with my children about this. I s- like. Oh, it's so confusing for even. I have two yeah, kids, right? And, exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's at least once a week it comes up. Like so, you know, because my husband is from India. He grew up in India, so I have to keep reminding my kids, like you know, you're also Indian, yeah. you know, and mummy also used to be Indian, but still is sort of Indian. <laughs> used to be Indian. <laughs> like, I used to have an Indian passport, baby, but like I technically am still like I have. S- like, India is part of my, not just my heritage, it's part of me, right? Like, it's part mm-hmm. of my childhood upbringing. It's, like, the the whole experience of living somewhere and knowing that you're also from somewhere else is part of your knowledge base. So, I, I'm try- I don't know how to explain it to her, though, because... <laughs> so I think, like, now, uh, as you were saying that, I'm thinking, like, I guess the key is to give your kids the the choice. Yeah. Present them with their options. <laughs> Like religion. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. religion. It's true. Yeah. You know, I'm actually super grateful to my mom because when it comes to religion, like, she's Christian. And, you know, in a way, she was teaching me about Jesus and stuff. But if I asked her, Mom, how come there are people, you know, there are Muslim people, Christian people, like, how come people believe different things? Like, I thought this was the story you know jesus stuff i thought that was the thing like what's going on you know and she just said well some people choose one religion and other people choose another and it's kind of your choice like she was so open about that stuff although like i know deep down she's christian and she's a believer but she actually was super yeah which is surprising by the way like for her generation yeah um you know the unfortunate consequence has been that i'm uh not really (laughs) any anything <laughs> yeah. um but i'm i'm so happy yeah, <laughs> but like you, okay. you could still be a good person and not be anything i have friends who were raised similarly i was raised very strict catholic no choice about that <laughs> um but that's okay i found my way to cherry pick the things i like from my religion <laughs> that's the thing right it's like give them the choice yeah. give your kids the choice i think that's a that's a good one because i do have some some grief towards my dad because I feel like he was a bit more like you're Lebanese and you're from this specific place in Lebanon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Like since I was a kid, he was like, <laughs> like this is the name of the place we're from, you know? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it was one story of Lebanon. Yeah. Right? And yeah, I, with, with time I grew older and I got to experience different stories of Lebanon and choose one for myself. Yeah. You know? For me, I think my parents also reminded me of 
the community I came from mm -hmm. in India. And then it was like this expectation that I should find someone to marry from my community in Canada, from that community in India, <laughs> in Canada. Um, so it was like, <laughs> I was very confused. <laughs> yeah, I get that. So I, get that. I basically dated everyone but <laughs> like my form of rebellion. But like, yeah, you know, I, I think like that became, I, I was a rebel in every way possible mm -hmm. in my family because my parents are, they had bus businesses and um, I was like the only person in my family who was interested in writing and reading and mm -hmm. like arts and it was just funny for them to be talking about business and I'd be like reading or like playing the guitar <laughs> like in the same room so it was just uh, I think like eventually even it's a bit of an immigrant experience and I think mm -hmm. I was talking to you about this as well the other day how immigrant parents or parents that have been moving around from country to country um, have this expectation of you have to do something that fits into this box because we need to make it make sense so that your future makes sense. Like, if it doesn't make sense, how do you make money, right? Like, <laughs> if, if you're going to be, like, what are, the what are the salary expectations of being in this space? So even when I was, went yeah. off to university, I was like, I'm a writer mom and I'm an actress, so I'm only applying to programs in those spaces. It's like, okay, you're going to also apply for journalism because you can write in journalism, right? <laughs> like, so it was like, okay, fine. <laughs> we'll meet halfway and that's what I'm doing. <laughs> I love that because my parents also love to say that I'm somehow involved with journalism. <laughs> I'm not... Like, I've never studied any kind of, like, journalism-related thing. But, like, I'll hear them talk to their friends and say, like, journalism. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm studying poetry. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, I, just, I don't correct it. I'm just like, yeah, journalism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that way, the com let's change the subject now because I don't want to have to explain myself anymore. <laughs> That's really funny. That's what I, I, I used to just find ways to get out of those conversations because even like uh, journalism. Okay, so which magazine are you a journalist for? I'm a freelancer. Oh. <laughs> so is that like always, how do you make money? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, because I like being in different spaces at different times. And, you know, it's, it's how I've always done it. And I don't know, people might not get it. Yeah, I'm also kind of, again, like, grateful because there are certain, like, internalized things that I have that I've... One, I've had to fight against intentionally, like, I don't know, the idea that... The perception of people, right? Like, my parents and their community, like, it's really important to be able to answer those questions. Like, what do you do? Like, I know that my parents are rehearsing the way they're going to answer that question when someone asks them, what does Dana do? While, while my parents had a s a one story about Lebanon that they, they passed down to me, I learned a lot from that story. And in their attempts to have me reconnect with my culture and reconnect with Lebanon, they made sure that I saw a real side of Lebanon and not like a polished vacation side of Lebanon and I think a lot of kids who grow up in Dubai will spend their summers in Lebanon in like in a place where it's all expats where it's you know 
not the real Lebanon where you've got like families like struggling to make ends meet and like there's always been poverty in Lebanon like now the crisis has gotten pretty pretty serious um but people have this polished idea of this country as being like super fun because you go in the summer you have a great time it's all like about the nightlife and the food and all of that but like I because we went back to my parents town every summer I got to see what Lebanon was really like I got to like become friends with people from Ale from my town and like it's not about poverty obviously of course there was always poverty like more so than you know, in a place like Dubai or Montreal or whatever it is. But it's also just about, like, normal people, you know? There's also, like, a sense of privilege in some of those places. Like, like you said, your friends who might go back as expats, they only see other expats. Like, that's also the thing that I... Because I lived in India for five years. I went there after, just before getting married. And um, if I was there with my kids, I feel like they would also see mostly, like, the like protected side of things so I would want them to see both sides but when does it like I don't want to cross that line into like exoticizing things either um and I don't think that's what happened to you but there's the fear that it's so different from what they know that I wouldn't want them to um pity it or anything like I just want them to see the rest of the world and know that like this is also your world and this is also something that you have to look after and, you know, like, you should be accessing that. So that's why, like, sometimes Dubai throws me off because it's, um, they are sequestered in this safety net, but uh, they have to also be open to leaving. Like, and how do I also nurture that experience? Like, that expectation of, like, you know, that I want to go explore the world. I, want, I don't want them, you know, to be too comfortable. At the same time, it is a really nice place to live. It is. It's like... It's great that yeah. it's comfortable. Yeah, and it's <laughs> a lot of people see it and they're like, "Oh, it's everything's so new. Where's the culture? Where's the history?" You know, but like th- th- nobody really recognizes that this is a country that 70 years ago was all sand. So it's not like they're going to import old buildings and and you know like you know bring in some ruins from Rome and like make it look like another country. You can't come to the Middle East and expect to see Europe, right? Like I, I feel like people say, "Oh, where's the culture? Culture has so many different faces." Why can't culture look like a new building that was constructed 50 years ago? Like maybe you have to come back in 100 years and you'll look at that as culture the same way we look at the ruins of Rome as culture. I totally agree. And I think one of the reasons I wanted to do this is because I feel like there's now a conversation or an effort, even from the government, to like build up the cultural scene in Dubai And I genuinely think this is one of those things, like a podcast like this. Um, It's not strictly Dubai culture, but I think it is is part of Dubai culture. Like just, you know, obviously podcasting is maybe not, I don't know if I can consider it art, but it is definitely part of the culture. Well, media is a big part of the culture here. And I think podcasting falls into that. And um, we are talking to people in both the arts and yeah. entrepreneurial and media space. So if that, uh, it might, yeah. uh, so I, but I think I know what you mean, that you don't know what it contributes to the arts and culture side of Dubai, but I, I think it contributes to the, like what we're trying to do is pulling from the um, people who are creating things here. And a lot of people mm. come here mm, to mm, build mm. things because there's also the infrastructure to build things. And I, I think that happens in any country that's like developing or like a, mm. a new territory. And yeah, like a lot of people who moved to North America, the new world back in 
the 1900s, 1800s, 1700s, all those during that whole, <laughs> back in the day. <laughs> they also moved there with the hope of building things, right? So, yeah, I think what I would love to do here is like raise the voices of people who are trying to, who are not afraid of quote-unquote starting culture, right? Like in Dubai, and I'm not saying there's no culture in Dubai because I, I know that there is, but it's it's still defining itself. And I love that people here aren't afraid to like just jump in, whether they're musicians or, or poets. Like we met a lot of poets when we went to the d Desert Stanzas yeah, event yeah. Uh, at the Emirates List Fest uh, last year. There are so many people trying to build that culture here. So true. You know? um, so I, I really want to encourage that. Yeah, and I mean, more and more musicians are coming into town. Like when I moved here for the first time in 2011, I mean, things were so different from what they are now. Like I've Sometimes you end up at house parties and like there's a jam session and those same artists will be performing around town. Like it's just really, there is a lot more happening now than it was before. It might not be the same as like a, a big city that people have lived in before, but why does it have to be the same? Why does anything have to look the same as what it looks in, like in another place? Isn't that like the beauty of going to a different place? Yeah, I love that. I love that. I love just people creating their own sort of, even the word multicultural feels like cliche <laughs> almost. <laughs> yeah. Just like their own thing, whatever that yeah. thing is, you know? It's like, again, this isn't about like distinct cultures just about identities like different identities and people coming together and just being their own authentic selves yeah you know yeah i agree <laughs> but yeah like one thing one thing i love about dubai as well is okay <laughs> this is gonna be weird um like have you seen dubai bling you know I have not watched an episode. <laughs> so I was one of those people, when I first started it, I was like, oh my God, I can't finish it. It's <laughs> so bad. And then I finished the whole season <laughs> in like three days. Um, I just love reality TV. Like I finished Selling Sunset, so of course I'm going to finish Dubai Bling. Oh. Like I, I can chill out. Like I can just watch those things, which is pretty bad. But <laughs> what, what I'm trying to get at <laughs> before you judge me um <laughs> it's okay <laughs> still love you <laughs> what I'm trying to get at is one thing I really liked about it <laughs> is how um multilingual it was and that felt so Dubai to me like it was like Leban the Lebanese woman speaking to the Iraqi like British Iraqi woman and they're like speaking English and then Lebanese and then like British English and then Iraqi and then it's like subtitles are going crazy like <laughs> trying to translate all the different languages that are happening you know and I was like oh that's so Dubai that's the one real Dubai thing yeah that's so <laughs> true show. oh my gosh <laughs> and I love that I love that I all, yeah yeah I don't know why like I don't no, know why this turned into a right. Dubai bling praise like, it's it's actually more than the Dubai bling I think we are we love the number of languages and accents in this city and how people find ways to kind of turn it into one um kind of even like the accent there's a Dubai accent you oh, know? there's totally a yeah. Dubai accent. I heard my nephew sharing is like he was just reading a book to me, and I'm like, oh my gosh, this kid has a Dubai accent. <laughs> it's yeah, not. Yeah. It's like a mix of British 
Arabic, yeah. Indian, yes. some kind of Americanized thing in there, uh, or Canadianized, because like everyone is from all over the place, and you go to a classroom or you go to a party, and oh, totally. I think it's most prominent in like Shrey Fat kids. Yeah, maybe that's their that's, <laughs> that's like I, the I, OG <laughs> Dubai accent yeah. is the Shrey Fat kids, <laughs> and something that's so cute is like um, like how Arab kids call their parents friends, auntie and uncle. Because that's an Indian yeah, thing. Yeah, that's right. Right? Yeah, yeah. Like, if, at least in du- the context of Dubai, it's an Indian thing. Um, I love that now, like, even within, like, Arabic circles, they call the older people uh, uncle and mm-hmm. auntie. And I was like, you know, usually we say <coughs> ammo for, for uncle, let's say, but because it's, like, Dubai and it's translated and there's that Indian influence, like, I find that so cute. Yeah. I love that. Well, that was one of the coolest things I found about Dubai when I first moved here and even when I started to have... Because when I, I studied in Montreal, like you, mm. at Concordia, unlike you, <laughs> <laughs> I studied at Concordia and Dana studied at McGill. Yeah. Um, and I met a lot of people from Dubai and Oman. Uh and they started, like, belting out their Hindi. And I was like, how do you know Hindi? They're like, in, in the Middle East, you learn Hindi at home. <laughs> because as an Arab, there's always, like, I mean, there were always Indians living in the household as well. Like, I, I didn't know that, you know, a lot of people in the West don't understand the whole nanny and helper thing. Mm-hmm. But it was, you know, it's a, it's a norm over here. And it has been a norm in other societies. Uh, and so they would grow up with, like helpers who were speaking Hindi and they would learn Hindi from them and so like I learned Hindi words from my Arab friends and it was so cool like I, I and you know I these helpers that. go on to become like members of the family like you know like um, my friends have traveled for hospitalization of their helpers to like be with them as like they mm-hmm. take care of them in their old age too it's it's quite nice in that way um, but yeah so I, I, that language bridge is awesome and I, I have to refer to the history of South Asians in the Middle East because my parents came here in the 70s and uh, I think at this point and by the time they left it was like 50% of the population in the UAE was South Asian yeah. and it was kind of cool to have that history here too yeah I love it I love it I also like like once when I'm outside of Dubai and let's say I meet like a Filipino or a Filipina I feel like I feel like I understand them. <laughs> like I feel like there is that connection between us. Mm. I feel close to that culture, specifically like Filipino culture, because I really did grow up with it growing up in Dubai. It's like, yeah, it's a beautiful thing, you know. Like I see it like a Filipino mom, and I feel like she's my mom, you know. Like, yeah, like Filipinos are they're the second moms in Dubai. Oh. No, it's true. Like from like n- nurses to yeah. like and any kind of like. They're so, you know, nurturing, I feel, <laughs> by nature, you know? So it's like, yeah, um, it's cool. When I when I moved to Dubai, I was also, like, really... I had I had my best friend growing up in, in, in school was Filipino-Canadian. Um, and a lot of my friends growing up were Filipino-Canadian. I think that that's one community that's managed to, like go all over the world <laughs> like mm-hmm. I, I I think they are m- they just migrate by nature I guess and I think it's also a harder country to live in um similar to the countries mm-hmm. that our parents have come from mm-hmm. uh, and that's like with I, I think like whenever I'm watching that migration journey I feel like we're gonna end up talking to some pretty cool Filipinos on this show too oh we yeah should for sure yeah for so sure. I, I feel like we should actually get people to recommend uh anyone that you think would yeah um be good storytellers or contributors to um, 
none of the above and beyond. Uh, we're open to suggestions mm-hmm. on our social media and in our email. And um, yeah, so I think we'll probably end up closing up soon. Yeah, uh, let's do that. Let's close up because um, we are running out of time, I think. Yeah, <laughs> we are. But I'm, I'm so excited for us to have like our first episode. And I, I hope everyone enjoyed the introduction to why we started this show and how we met and what brings us together uh so whenever we have the next episode out it'll be in the next week or two Mm -hmm. uh we will be keeping you updated by social media and digital and um looking forward to getting to know all of our watchers and listeners and readers yeah besides like the two people who are gonna be listening to this until the end. <laughs> <laughs> I hope there's more Including people Including my mom. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to send it to my parents. They'll be like, oh, that, that's cute. <laughs> my parents are not going to finish this. <laughs> yeah, th- the idea will be cute to my parents. I don't know if they would listen to it either, but it's okay. Uh, it's cool. Yeah, we'll keep going, even if there's three listeners. Yeah, we got to keep doing it. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thanks, Caroline. Thanks, Dana. Take care, everyone. And until next time. Bye.